Welcome to Liberated, a Liberal Democrat podcast. I'm Laura Sheeter. This episode, we're talking education, schools, universities, vocational courses, and even careers advice. And we'll be getting philosophical about the purpose of education with our guest, the Times Educational Supplement reporter, Martin George. Martin writes about education and politics for the TES. He reported from the Autumn Conference and took part in some of the fringe events there too. So he had lots of questions about Lib Dem policies past and present. But I started by asking Vince Cable about the emergency motion passed at conference on teacher recruitment and retention and about how important education is to the party. Just to say, we had some technical problems with the recording, so I'm afraid we sound a bit echoey and distorted this episode. Sorry about that. Traditionally, we regarded education as our number one domestic issue. We still do. We want to rebuild our credibility in that area. And the market, if we want to use that language, is waiting for a champion. It's a massive concern, and I think as a party we should be championing the teaching profession and schools as an issue. There are two sets of problems, I think. The first is around the salary cap. Because of rising inflation, teachers are currently experiencing, as are many public sector workers, a decline in their take-home pay in real terms. So they are actually being made poorer at the moment. And secondly, in, in a big city like London, you know, housing is completely unaffordable. People are having to travel long distances. Uh, I went to a local primary school recently that was, you know, pretty good shape. It got a good Ofsted report, but they literally lost half of their teachers at the end of the summer term. And they're having to recruit. It's much more difficult to get people because the salaries are no longer attractive and because of the cost of housing. So, yeah, it's right that we major on this issue. And do you think there's a keystone policy that the Lib Dems should be sort of implementing or that we have already that you think might be key to really, as you say, getting back credibility and making a difference? Yes, I don't think there is a you know, simple uh, coin-in-the-slot solution to these problems. I think lifting the uh, pay cap uh, at the very least to allow for inflation is a necessary step. I do think that there needs to be further injection of funding into education as indeed into the NHS and in our election manifesto we demonstrated how that could be done in a financially responsible way, not relying on a magic money tree but showing how modest changes postponing or abandoning some of the tax cuts, for example, that the government introduced, created some freedom of manoeuvre. Martin, you were recently at the Lib Dem conference. You, I think, took part in some of the fringe events around yes. education. Yeah. What was your impression about where Lib Dem policy stands compared to what you're hearing from schools and teachers and, and compared to the other major parties? I think one thing that came across, especially talking to people who'd stood for the Lib Dems in the last election, was that while the Lib Dems had policies that seemed popular on the doorsteps and with teachers when it came to schools, um, I think there was concern that there weren't distinctive policies on education. So I had one candidate who said he was on a a hustine stage with Green Party and Labour Party opponents and they simply agreed on all issues education, whether it was more funding, whether it was lifting the funding cap. And another campaigner said at the fringe meeting I was at um, that the Lib Dems campaigned very strongly on school cuts and funding squeezes, but that seemed to actually help the Labour Party locally. So 
it just boosted the Labour vote in his constituency. So I think the thing, the thing I was really interested in was your question about what is distinctive in schools policy for the Liberal Democrats? Well, uh, there were two things which we brought in in the coalition which were very distinctive, one of which was the pupil premium, which has made a great deal of difference to um, the pupils and the schools which have received it. Um, you know, we'd had long periods of Labour government which were quite generous to, to the educational budget, but they'd never done anything like that. The idea of attaching money to individual pupils uh, to give them a better start and uh, to help the, give the schools an incentive to focus on their needs was distinctive and it was very successful and something we introduced in government. And the other was the free school meals for younger children which is linked to performance in schools because you know diet, nutrition, ability to concentrate I and mean, all these things are correlated. It's been demonstrated to be a success and it was very much a Lib Dem policy. So refocusing on those issues and the lack of interest in the Conservative government in them is important. Now of course you know the Labour Party will always say spend more money on everything. The issue is going to be in coming elections how credible that is and how you're going to fund it and I think we will have the edge when it comes to combining ambition for public services with responsible financing of them. I think some of the candidates I've spoke to, maybe they would say, well, yes, they're very proud of, of those policies from the coalition days. But that seems to be a slightly backward-looking historic view, that those now seem fairly embedded in the system, both those policies. So, so what is it that the Lib Dems will offer in the future? You know, what is the new thing that, that is different to the Conservatives or, or the Labour Party? Well, I'm not sure they are embedded. Certainly this government has shown every indication of wanting to backtrack on the schools' meals issue. Admittedly, their thinking at the moment is a bit confused. But I th no, I think, I think it will be a question of how much resource a future government is willing to put into schools and how you can finance it and in, in a financially credible way. I don't think the teachers or parents are looking for gimmicks. We're very obviously very different from the Conservatives in the sense we don't want to reintroduce grammar schools and selection and there's a clear dividing line around that. But I think in terms of differentiation from the Labour Party it will be in terms of how realistic people think the programmes are in terms of the ability to raise money to fund better quality school education. I think I was very struck also at the conference. Um, Leila Moran, your, your new education uh, spokesperson, gave a, a speech, a very well-informed speech as a, a former teacher and a, an academic, but it seemed to be a speech that I couldn't have imagined David Laws giving when he was schools minister. I think he was much more talking about choice in the school system, parental choice. Leila Moran was talking more about um, children should go to their local school and backing away from some of the academisation and perhaps marketisation or competition forces in the school system that were introduced when you were in coalition. Is that a change in, in, in direction for the Liberal Democrats? Well, I think it's a change in emphasis. I think most of us in particular have seen the way in which the free school system has played out. And it's not, I mean, it's not in some ways, it's not working at all well. I mean, we have examples around here where uh, new schools, which, you know, by definition, free schools, uh, are in the wrong place. There's been no planning. Mm. The marginalisation of local authorities has um, uh, meant that you know the, the previous sensible thinking ahead in terms of school numbers and location has largely broken down. Uh, and a kind of free-for-all system um, is, is not a good one. So, yeah, we have 
changed emphasis. I think, to be fair to David, he and the rest of us were in favour of uh, academies and giving mm. more autonomy to local schools, but the preschool system was very much driven by the conservative side of the coalition, and uh, I, I, it wouldn't be a surprise to anybody, I think, that we are, we are moving in a somewhat different direction. Sure. I mean, do you see a, a bigger role now for local authorities in the school system? I mean, there are lots of complaints about the academy system from some that the sort of democratic oversight is missing and the coordination across a geographical area is missing. Yes, well, both of those things are true. I mean, I happen to live in a, an area where uh, we've had good local authority oversight of schools in the past. You had genuinely enlightened local authorities who... You know, had a fairly loose approach to oversight, but they were there a to coordinate sure. and b to intervene when you had you know clearly failing schools much more effectively than under the current system, which depends on a very cumbersome system operating through the governors and then through through Ofsted. So, I've seen competent uh, local authority management, and I'd like to see some of the emphasis restored in the, and what we now have in this particular area is that what used to be the local authority has now become a freestanding operation which is trying to run schools in Sunderland and you know the other end of the country and they've completely lost focus things that really need to be done and need to be done properly like special education needs seem to be neglected and what I think has happened is the baby's been thrown out of the bathwater. Mm. So are there any sort of concrete changes you'd make then? I mean, in powers you'd want to give local authorities they don't currently have, you know, powers over to, to direct academies to admit certain pupils if there's a, you know, lots of exclusions, for example, or, or to, to dictate admissions policies that, that look at the whole geographical area rather than individual schools? Well, I think it's a question of the balance. I mean, I was a councillor... Um, actually in Scotland, I was a Glasgow City Councillor in my late 20s, many years ago, in the great days of local authority control. And, you know, we even got involved in councillors and appointing individual teachers. Um, And it became very political, for the reasons you can imagine, and that was unhealthy. So a degree of school autonomy, treating head teachers and their teams as grown-ups rather than having councillors lean over their shoulders... I think has been healthy, but I think the balance has gone the wrong way, and I think you've rightly um, pointed to you know some of the areas where you know local authorities do need to have a greater say in terms, in, particularly in terms of planning, in terms of achieving fairness, uh, preventing schools pursuing their own individual ratings at the expense of the wider community, and so you know there needs to be some reining back of that. Following on from this, we had a few questions uh, from listeners to the podcast about this. You've talked a lot about tackling inequality. We've talked about the pupil premium and those kind of achievements that were in the coalition government. I had a few questions from people on, on Facebook and on our, on our Twitter feed about whether private schools come under that view, whether we should be treating them differently in any way, whether that goes for people who've asked mm. whether you're going to ban them, whether you're going to change their charitable status, whether we should touch them at all. Yes, I... I what I like to see is the private and state sector working in in partnership rather than a kind of class, we, you know, we're going to abolish them all. I, I mean, that was the rhetoric of 30, 40 years ago, and I don't think that belongs. But I, I do see s- some considerable advantage in treating the charitable status and its social obligations seriously. 
A lot of private schools already do very good work, but some do very little. Um, so I think the idea that independent schools should be encouraged through charitable status to engage more with neighbouring local uh, maintained schools is, is the direction we should go in. Um, and there's got to be a mixture of you know, sticks and carrots, and charitable status is, is quite a generous carrot. When I announced to the listeners that we would be talking about education, obviously one of the first things people talked about was tuition fees and the impact it had had on our voter base and what we can do, or what our policy should be, and also what you can do to just draw a line under that um, and talk about it. Well, I confronted this openly at conference. I think there had been a tendency to sweep the whole issue under the carpet and hope it would go away. I think that the impact on the party has been exaggerated. I mean, I've got a lot of labour-leasing voters used to use this as a stick to beat us with. I'm sure they'd already made up their mind about how they were going to vote. No, but it has done damage. But it was seven years ago, and I think you know people tend to forget that the Labour Party twice made some pledges on tuition fees and broke them, and then now they've done it a third time, with Jeremy Corbyn's promise to abolish student debt and then having to admit that they couldn't possibly do any such thing. So what I've done to re-engage with the issue is to ask David Howarth, who some people remember as senior Cambridge academic, former MP in Cambridge, to lead a group of people to look at this issue afresh. We know what he will encounter is that actually the present system, although it's flawed in many ways, nobody's yet come up with a better way of doing it. I mean, essentially what the present system does is to ensure that universities are properly funded and that um, nobody pays any cash to go to universities. It's, uh, there's no upfront fees. And when they leave, uh, they only pay according to their ability to pay. And if you're a you know, low-paid or unemployed um, graduate, you don't pay anything. And if you're well-paid, you pay in proportion to your income. So there's a basic equity about the system. But nonetheless, people have become worried about levels of debt, even though it is a kind of tax. And you know, there's no way of avoiding the fact that the issue needs to be, um, needs to be grappled with. I think it was interesting that um, your successor two stages ago, Nick Clegg, was the, the lightning rod, as it were, for that tuition fees anger. Of course, you were the Secretary of State or Business Secretary who, who brought in the fees yourself. I, I wonder if you felt that any of that disquiet had sort of attached personally to you, or whether you thought Nick Clegg had almost sort of taken the heat off it, you now your party leader. Well, I don't see it as in personal terms. I mean, the problem was, it wasn't actually about the policy. It was the fact that a very public pledge was made and then was broken and uh, Nick was leader of the party and he led that campaign and unfortunately for him it backfired and he paid a very heavy political price. I feel sympathy for him because he was in an impossible position but nonetheless that was why the blame attached to him. I think people realised that I and my colleagues were doing the best to minimise the damage. But the, the way that the debate's playing out at the moment is, is potentially going to take us backwards rather than forwards. I mean, if you take this hint that the Conservative government are giving, that they are going to reduce the headline fees, I mean, that sounds as if it's helpful, but it actually is deeply unhelpful because anybody who knows the way that the financing system works means that what the Treasury is proposing to do is to take a lot of money away from universities. It's a cut. And it doesn't help students, because if they graduate, they're still going to be paying 9p in the pound. 
and you know they may then have a lesser obligation in 35 years time but frankly that's not not terribly relevant to their immediate problems and and in fact that cutting the headline fee is probably the most stupid thing that the government could do in the present circumstances by all means do something about the interest rate by all means raise the threshold about 21,000 and above all let's restore maintenance grounds but cutting the headline ticket price is just all it's doing is cutting funding for universities. Yeah. Well I mean back to almost some schools issues perhaps um, I, I know that um, your, the manifesto um, for the June election um, it had more education and schools policies and commitments than any of the other parties mm. I could see it, it seemed a very um, teacher focused um, set of priorities rather than perhaps more parent you know, retail offer there. Mm-hmm. Um, issues that have come up are things like parents concerned about their children being over tested, especially SATs at primary schools. There have been concerns about um, GCSEs being too high stakes accountability for the schools and pressure being put on pupils. I wondered what you thought about are children over tested and how should schools be held to account for how they perform, how they spend taxpayers' money and how they educate our young people? Well, I think there probably is excessively testing, but we have now rode back a little bit, haven't we, from very, very young age mm. testing, and that's, I'm sure that's right. But the principle of having some kind of basic standards and objective assessment seemed to me to be fundamentally right, and I wouldn't want to scrap the whole of that. I think one area where the interests of pupils and parents is not being properly taken account of was careers advice and guidance. I think this is it's an absolutely terrible mess. It's largely disappeared from a lot of schools. It was one of Michael Goh's initiatives that we didn't stop. And we really do need to focus on that. And the reason why it is so um, damaging is because all of the attempts that we made and which I was trying to make in the business department, which had to revive apprenticeships and bring back respect to vocational education, have been totally undermined by destroying a system that would have helped to introduce it to young people. And at the moment, all there is is the kind of standard UCAS-type approach, which just encourages people to go to university, whether or not it's the best outcome for them. Uh, and I, I, I fear we have gone back in that area. And if I had to uh, really go for something substantial and new, it would be to, to really beef up proper careers advice. When we you know, talk to teachers or see surveys of teachers, that's one that comes up a lot: is teachers don't feel they're getting they're getting the support to give careers advice to. No, to they're, they're absolutely right, and it was it was a, a bad mistake, um, and the da- lots of damage has been done. But it, you know, we've now got to repair it. Yeah. You mentioned this approach that encourages people to go to university, whether or not it's the right thing for them. And you've talked before about the need to concentrate also on the 60% of young people who don't go to university. Mm. I had a few questions from listeners to the podcast about what that entails as far as you're concerned. I do want to build up a a better offer for the 60% who go to university. And you may know I've been working for the last year with the National Union of Students and we prepared a report setting out a whole set of ideas about how we support FE colleges, support vocational education, raise the status, shift the balance of resourcing more in that direction. And, you know, and I'd like to continue to work with the National Union of Students on that. The basic point is, of course, if you go to university, 
at the moment you do get access to the student loan scheme and you know the university student complained that it leads to debt the, the problem is that for people in the FE sector they don't even get that I mean, <laughs> uh, and what I do want to do is to create more of a, a kind of level favourite playing field between the two and one idea which I'm trying to work up and I did talk about this at conference is using the taxation of wealth or unproductive wealth to finance a proper system of learning accounts for all young people um, which they can use in a variety of ways, I mean, it would be up to the individual to finance courses, books, rebating their fees if that's what they want to do, and generally support young people across the board. You know, that's something we've got to work up and put, put some flesh on the bones. I mean, still around the area of universities, and I know that um, Joe Johnson, university's minister, has raised concerns about vice-chancellor's pay, mm-hmm. and he introduced the idea of fining universities that can't justify paying vice-chancellors more than prime minister. There seems to be a parallel concern with Academy Trust at the moment, with a number of CEOs being paid very large amounts of money. I wondered whether you'd support the introduction of, of caps on Academy leaders' pay or a system of fining them if, they, if they're not performing as well as their salary should justify. I mean, this is all very silly, actually. I mean, universities are supposed to be independent institutions. They're not supposed to be nationalised. I'm very well aware that, you know, the university... Vice-Chancellor's pay has become incendiary and it did, I, I warned the universities about this five years ago. I mean, we, you know, I, I used to go with um, David Willits to Universities UK and we said to them, look, we, we, we've introduced a package here which will ensure that universities are properly funded, uh, you know, the, the, the fee loan system. And they have been, and they've been very fortunate, unlike councils and the police force and others, they haven't had much austerity, they've, they've had plenty of funding. Uh, but we did say to them at the time, do not abuse it, because if you do, the whole system will come into discredit. And that some of them have, but that is not a sensible basis for renationalising universities, because once you start renationalising universities, universities are being told what courses they should run, which fit the political agenda of the ruling. But you see some of this in Scotland, I and mean, that is not the, the, the path to go down. And as far as um, you know, people abusing academy status are concerned, I mean that is an argument for rebalancing accountability at a local level towards local authorities, which we've already talked about, and I would support that. But the idea of somebody sitting in a ministerial office deciding on what pay should be in academies or car factories or um, universities or anywhere else, I mean this is this is really regressive mm. stuff. You know. But it sounds like you might support you. Know, Local authorities having a role then. Yes, yes, of course, of course they should, and that's that's where the it should be decided at a local level. We should we should not be. It's it's getting back to you know Napoleonic France, Mm. the kind of system we used to have in the sixties and seventies when civil servants were deciding how much everybody should be paid, and then this is not not a sensible way to go. There's a a slightly more philosophical question, perhaps I had about um, schools and the amount of data and how data is used to hold schools to account. And there seems to be fears that at, at every level of the school system that the, the, the reliance on data is building in um, perverse incentives for schools to behave in ways that are not in the best interest of their children. Yes, well, I think that there should be much less targeting. And if you have less targeting, you need less data. And there should be much more trust for what teachers do in the classroom. Mm. Um, we, we've already known from the experience of the NHS that 
if you set lots of targets, it does produce perverse incentive. You know, we do have to decentralise decision-making, and that goes back to the whole issue about moving away from central government diktat. But it also means trusting teachers much more. A lot of the debate about education at the moment, especially when people talk about Brexit, it's about young people, skills and jobs. And some people say that's a very utilitarian outlook. And what about the job of learning? Fundamentally, what do you think the purpose of our school system should be? Well, it should be about well-rounded people and well-rounded minds. Mm. And all we, what we do know is that the old-fashioned sort of grad-grind approach to education um, just isn't appropriate in a, an era where you're trying, you know, where our status in the world really depends on how creative and inventive we are as a country because what you're now getting in that kind of digital era is, is a fusion of creative arts and mathematical skills and the two things often go together and putting things in a box that says, you know, you must study computers or maths and not look at anything else is not sensible. I mean, mm. the, the industries where Britain is currently doing well, um, the creative industries are very much at the fore of it, um, involves areas like design, and design is partly about art and, and uh, having a flair, but at the same time having a very good mathematical background too. And, and this fusion of disciplines is something that's you know very difficult to reconcile with a very narrow slightly backward looking approach to the curriculum so we do need breadth mm. so you know schools you know really do have to have performing arts as well as you know the three three r's but do you think there's an issue there that um, again go back to coalition policies the introduction of the english baccalaureate very much focusing on um, traditional academic subjects. Um, we've seen a report out this week saying that the number of GCSE entries in arts and dance mm. have fallen over that period. I mean, do you think that was a, a, a mistake of the coalition government and you'd like to see well, that changed? Well, th this was, was Mr Gove's personal um, thing and it, it actually had strengths as well as weaknesses. I mean, one of the purposes of the baccalaureate concept was to widen curriculum it was to get into a more European style of school education or actually a more Scottish style as well where instead of everybody at least on the more academic side narrowing down to three subjects at 16 you, you had a much wider range of subjects so that was the good thing but it's it's because it's prescriptive in a different way has tended to squeeze out um, other subjects politicians are often you know we often get people sending us petitions and so on saying we must have sex education in the curriculum, we must have religion in the curriculum or not, we must have climate change in the curriculum, we must have X, Y and Z and by, you know, if you did everything that uh, people uh, seem want to see educated, the whole curriculum becomes very, very highly prescriptive and you know, that's not sensible, again it comes back to the issue of trust. Yeah, and actually raises another issue. I think you raised at the very start the issue of teacher recruitment and teacher workload. Do you have any ideas or thoughts on how to a get more good people into the classrooms and then to to hang on to them? Well, I get the impression that most teachers don't mind hard work. It, mm. it, it's um, that, I don't think that's the problem. It, it's it's been respected and treated seriously, and I think actually what undermines 
teacher morale, apart from fairly basic things like pay, it's, it's been treated in a very infantile way and being told exactly what you must teach, when you must teach it, and then being undermined by inspections, for example, that fail to take account of you know, genuinely creative work on the ground. So it, 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 I think I, I get a sense that if, if teachers were trusted more and treated in a more professional way, a lot of the discontent would go, but, but again, you can, you know, it's the bread and butter issues that matter as well. Thanks for listening to Liberated. If you enjoyed the conversation, please do rate, review and share it wherever you listen to podcasts. It'll help other people find the show. As you heard, we're also putting your questions to Vince, so please do check our Facebook page and look for posts on other Liberal Democrat sites where we'll be letting you know what topic we want questions on next. We're at Liberated Pod on Twitter and Liberated Podcast on Facebook. Thanks to Martin George for joining the conversation and to Mark Pack and Benjamin Leal for their invaluable support making this series. Thank you.